Please now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you now to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we will be looking again uh, at verses 1 through 4 and 11 through 18. And today we want to talk about the danger of losing the gospel. The danger of losing its power in your life can come from not knowing how to live under the new covenant and falling back into old covenant ways of relating to God. And so we're going to talk about that today. And uh, let me ask you now to hear the word of the Lord as we read it from Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at the first four verses and then verses 11 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of ev sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Then look with me down at verse 11. And every priest stands daily as, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, wait, wait, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would grant to us now much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would work powerfully and persuasively in our midst. And we do pray that as we sit and listen to your word, we would hear it. We would be able to perceive it, to understand it, that it might reach deeply into our hearts and bring us comfort and conviction and encouragement and uh, bring us closer to you. So we ask that you work change in us by your Spirit through the Word, and we're confident you will do that because you have promised that wherever you send your Word, it will not return to you void or empty, but will accomplish the purposes you intend for it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author has made the point that the law has a certain limitation and inability woven into it. And if you look at verse 3 of chapter 10, notice that he says, um, Out 
Actually, it's not in verse 3. Somebody moved it. It's in the end of verse 1. <laughs> I just prayed about failure and uh, blaming it on somebody else, didn't I? All right. <laughs> it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, look at that next phrase, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, any form of attempting to achieve righteousness, that is a good standing with God, based upon what we do, will never, ever be effective. It can't accomplish what needs to be accomplished. What concerns the author the most is the law's inability, that is the law of Moses, to make perfect those who draw near to worship God. And the perfection he has in mind in this particular passage does not mean or involve a lack of flaws, but rather a state of a right relationship with God in which the worshipers are once and for all cleansed from sin and delivered from a nagging, convicting sense of guilt. The fact that the old covenant system could not deliver in this regard is demonstrated by the continual offering of year, uh, offerings year after year after year. And so rather than delivering worships for worshipers from guilt, it actually had the fat fact effect of aggravating and reminding them of their sinfulness and their constant separation from God. And so what I wanted to get into is, okay, that's them. That's this Hebrew church in the first century. They were under severe persecution. Many were beginning to doubt Many were struggling financially. They were struggling every way they possibly could conceive of, and they were beginning to entertain the notion that we'll just go back to first century Judaism. We'll just go back to Moses. We'll go back there because we know there things were working out better for us there than they are now. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to say in so many ways that is utterly stupid and ridiculous for you to do that. You do not yet understand the depth of the gospel. And you're in danger of losing it by this notion of falling away from the gospel and returning back to any form of works righteousness. But I also wanted to take time to tie into the idea and concept today that that's something we do all the time. We are all the time finding ourselves returning back to a covenant of works mindset by which if we obey, we get some kind of leverage over God. And we sort of back him into a corner and say, I've been a good Christian this week. Now you must bless me however I define being blessed. And of course, we end up being disappointed because it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't happen that way. And so... Here's what I want to talk about today in a nutshell. There are three kinds of responses to the gospel and the love of God revealed in the gospel that I see happen in my own heart, but also in the life of the church. And those three responses are to the love of God revealed in the gospel. Number one, I know God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? I know he loves me. Why wouldn't he? The second response is, I can't believe God loves me like that. Why would he? And the third response is, I am amazed and electrified and vitalized and enthralled daily as I consider 
Christ's love for me. And so we need to think about today how our response to God's love reveals our heart's disposition toward the gospel. And the first two typical of Christians uh, that, that I've mentioned allowed the gospel to slip from the center. And those for whom the love of God is beginning to lose its power to transform. In other words, most of you have been in church long enough, and most of you understand what the Bible says enough to know pretty much daily what you ought to do. Your problem is the same as my problem. Where do I get the power and motivation to do it? And that's when the gospel gets decentralized from our experience, and we fall into one or two ways of relating to God. The first one is the smug moralist. We'll talk about what that looks like. And the second way is the miserable moralist. And so both of those approaches are routes or, or responses to the love of God revealed in the gospel that we fall into. And so let's first talk about the smug moralist. Who is this guy? And what is he? Well, what is a moralist anyway? I think most of you would be very shocked to know that Christianity is not the same thing as morality. Uh, what is moralism? Moralism is basically uh, behavior management. That's basically what it is. Um, moralism is not the gospel, and it's one of the most seductive false gospels in the church. And it can take many forms and emerge from any number of political and cultural impulses. Nevertheless, the basic structure of a moralist or moralism comes down to this. The belief that the gospel can be reduced to just improvements in behavior. Therefore, the Bible then becomes a code book, a list of rules, a Christian Talmud, a manual for learning how we can manage our behavior in every situation. And then moralistic preaching becomes an exercise in me scolding and nagging and conjoling and reproving your inappropriate behavior every week. Uh, Without a focus upon the person and work of Christ, a moralistic approach to Christianity will reinforce and feed the very religious flesh that the gospel is designed to kill in us. So, let's look, first of all, at what I call the smug moralist. This is the person who says, I know God loves me, why wouldn't he? I'm a good person. You know, they think that uh, God loves them, that he's kindly disposed and easily satisfied. And God is uh, one who we conceive of as one to get a little help from the man upstairs. God is sort of lucky to have us on his team. And we assume that God should love us because we are uh, results-oriented and, and we, we think he's pleased. So what we will do is we will give a nod of assent that God does require certain things of us. And so we reduce that down to two or three significant outward duties. And if we do them, then God is pleased. And if we just fulfill and avoid flagrant technicolor um, sins that bad people commit, then we'll be okay. But here's one of the great problems of what I call the smug moralist. The smug moralist has no idea of how deep sin goes. 
Richard Lovelace, who's a historian, church historian, uh, I think he's dead now, but he was a, he was a great historian for church history uh, in the last century. And he argued this, he says, what the church needs more than anything else, and he's speaking of the church in the world, is a greater sense of the depth of sin and a greater vision of the holiness of God. That's what the church needs. And the smug moralist keeps it on a surface level sort of stays above the fray, uh, sort of regards himself or herself as above it all. And it's amazing when you look at the Gospels, and let me read to you what Richard Lovelace said about sin and its depth. He says, the structure of sin in human personality is something far more complicated than isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate disobedience commonly designated by the word sin. In its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex. You know, you've heard people say he has an inferiority complex or he has a superiority complex. And he says that is an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. He says... Jesus also speaks of out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. The evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. The human heart is now a reservoir of unconscious, disordered motivation and response of which unrenewed persons are unaware if left to themselves. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. And so the moralist has no sense, has no real sense of the smug moralist type, has no real sense of their sin. And they tend to live their lives with a sort of um, um, mediocre kind of <laughs> uh, connection to the Lord. Uh, for example, in the scriptures, Jesus' harshest criticism were aimed at the smug moralist. He relentlessly contrasted their outward show of religion with the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He wasn't concerned about protecting their self-esteem when he called the smug moralist of his time hypocrites, blind guides, and children of their father, the devil. Why would he speak to them in such a way? Why would he do that? For this one reason, he wanted to tear apart their self-reliance and self-confidence. And he understood that they would never embrace with childlike humility that which is essential for salvation as long as they trusted in their own goodness. In addition, the great gift of God's love would never thrill or delight them when they assumed their own worthiness. The love of God has no effect upon a person who thinks they're a pretty good person. Has no effect upon a person who doesn't see their sin. It loses its shaping power. It loses something when a person doesn't see how they're unworthy before the Lord. Uh, in the Bible, we have several examples of smug moralists. For example, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He seeks Jesus out. And Jesus annihilated him with five simple words. You must be born again. 
And when this, another smug moralist approached Jesus, he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus purposely crushes his proud hearts with these words, Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus deliberately tells both of these men to do something beyond their ability because he wanted them to recognize the full extent of their helplessness, that there is no hope in self ever. To be okay. Paul was continually fighting against smug moralists, who, men who wanted to add obedience to the law as a prerequisite for attaining righteousness before God. They had way too much confidence in their own abilities and way too little confidence in God's goodness and generosity. They recognized Jesus as Messiah, but they balked at the idea that his law-keeping had to replace their own if they were ever to know and love God's favor. They mistakenly thought if they were overly scrupulous and added works of the law to their faith, their superficial law-keeping was simply another way to avoid the humiliation intrinsic in entrusting their standing before God to a crucified Messiah and standing beside unwashed Gentiles as helpless dependents of sheer grace. It enabled them to keep some semblance of self-respect. I had a good friend who planted a church in Mississippi, uh, in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, he was a good guy. He was a gospel cowboy. That's what I called him because he, he just loved the gospel and he was inflamed by the gospel. And so he'd been planting that church there for about two years and I ran into him and so I asked him Shane I said Shane how's it going in Oxford Mississippi what's going on Shane looked at me and he said I had no idea how much people in Mississippi hate the gospel and he's from Mississippi had no idea how much they hate the gospel why because the gospel before it heals exposes it tears down all of our self-justification strategies it exposes us. No one likes to be exposed as a fraud. And although it's, it sounds nice, it was actually an insult, insult to the honor of Jesus, and it denuded the gospel of all of its power. You know, when a person says to you after presenting to them the gospel, of course God loves me, why wouldn't he? What's all the fuss about? We want you to encourage you to ask the following questions. Why would a perfectly holy God love me? Why would a perfectly holy God love me? And if the answer is, well, I'm not such a bad person. There are people a lot worse than me because I tithe or because I attend church regularly or because I try to be nice and do the best I can but you're missing the humiliation that comes without having to accept the truth about your own goodness. God's word says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, when you ask a, a smug moralist what makes you acceptable to God, he says, oh yeah, I get it. Well, I guess Jesus does. And then you ask him, do you really believe that? then why is it when you're going through a difficult trial, you get mad at God and think he isn't holding up his side of the bargain? 
Do you rehearse all the good things you have done for him and all the temptations you have resisted? Are you trying to avoid the truth that all you can bring to him is the debt that must be paid by another? You're missing the love of God in Christ. A smug moralist also has a low boiling temperature. Do I find that others irritate me? Is it easy to judge other people? Do people who break the law or your own rules or your own convictions annoy you? When you're standing in line that has 10 items or less at the grocery store, are you irritated at the woman in front of you who has 13 items? By the way, recently, I was in the express line, and it clearly said 15 items. And so I counted my little items to make sure, and I had 15. So as I laid them all out on the uh, conveyor belt, I reached and got a pack of gum. And added that, and you should have seen the guy behind me. It was like he had an aneurysm. I mean, it was like he'd blown out an entire aorta. And he said, that's 16, isn't it? And I said, I don't know. He's already run one through. Just take a break. Chill out. There are people like that. Or what about people who don't signal before they change lanes? or tailgate, or talk, or text on their cell phones. I think I see more text driving than I do drunk driving these days, and it looks just the same to me. Do you find it easy to look down upon those who are unsaved? Or other Christians who are not as theologically sound as you are? If so, you're missing the gospel. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but God has graciously chosen you when there wasn't one drop of grace or righteousness in your soul and nothing to recommend you to him. Are you beginning to see how amazing grace is? So the smug moralist, the person who finds it very difficult, very, very, very difficult to ever receive criticism. What I would say to the smug moralist is this, and I'll move on to the miserable one. There hasn't been one minute of one day of your entire life that you've ever really obeyed the first and greatest commandment. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody has ever rendered perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to that one commandment. And then the second, to love your neighbors yourself, nobody has ever done that. And that is the law. That's the summary of the law. There's never been one minute. And because it's so hard to do, we replace it with easier rules so we can stay complacent and smug and satisfied with our self-esteem intact. The problem, of course, is we're never made deeply joyful by the gospel because we've never been deeply crushed by it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you have never been offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're probably not a Christian. It says to you, this is what it took to make you right with God. For me to deliver up my own son and lay upon him your sin." is the only way I could ever find to accept you. If the love of God bores you, you're a smug moralist. Take yourself to Calvary and see what your sin has done. Are you beginning to despair 
of being worthy of his love. Well, that's good. Let the love of Christ soothe your troubled conscience and humbly admit, along with the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. How does the love of God look? Truly comprehended when we're broken, it is a thing of beauty. But being caught up in moralism, a shallow, outward, conforming moralism, love of God will be boring to you. Second kind of moralist is one I call the miserable moralist. And in contrast to the smug moralist, he sees the demands of the law and says in response to seeing the demands of what the law makes, I can't believe God loves me like that. Why would he love me like that? He knows God is transcendent. He knows that God is holy. He knows that God is not to be trifled with. And the miserable moralist is very serious about his Christian commitment. He's read the first great commandment and the second which is like it, and he has no illusion, none whatsoever, that he has ever fulfilled it. He's He's, he's a person that grieves all the time because he knows that he has a pride problem or he doesn't see that he has a pride problem. He believes that he ought to be able to do better, that he shouldn't have to depend upon the constant mercy of God. So he's harsh with himself. He thrashes himself with condemnation, hoping that by so doing he will be able to obey and finally find rest. He is trying to justify himself by his repentance. And you can't do that. You know, we don't even repent very well. We don't. <laughs> we don't. And yes, repentance and faith are part of the way God saves us. But the repentance that, that saves us is produced by the power of the gospel. This guy is trying to atone for himself. He's always wearing hair shirts and crawling across broken glass and fasting, sort of. But he does it in other ways, too, to try to convince himself that he's sorry enough, he's scrupulously religious, frequently outpacing other Christians around him, but it's never enough to shut his conscience up. He thinks if he could just see sin as it really is and be sorry enough for it, God would finally be pleased with him. And when he reads about God's love for us in Christ, he isn't comforted at all. He's not enthralled. He's terrified. He's condemned. He doesn't know the peace that Christ promises or the joy that should infect his heart. He too is trying to avoid the realities of the gospel, but from a very different perspective. He's trying to prove that he's, uh, he is worthy, therefore removing the stumbling block of the cross. He's not alone. There are testimonies of godly men who were miserable moralists before they really grasped the ramifications of grace and the gospel. One of them was the 18th century preacher George Whitfield, as he admonished his listeners. Listen to what old George said. Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your heart, you must not only be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness too. Of all your duties, of all your performances, there must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of the heart. The pride of the heart will not let us submit 
to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Powerful statement. And then David Brainerd, who was a son-in-law, I believe, of George, uh, maybe Jonathan Edwards. And uh, he was an early missionary to the American Indians. Listen to what he said. Listen carefully. When I had been fasting, praying, and obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God. But I was doing it all for my own glory, to feel I was worthy. As long as I was doing this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, everything for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I wasn't worshiping him, but I was using him. Though often I confessed to God that I, of course, deserved nothing, yet I harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. In other words, I healed myself with my duties. I resonate very much with these words because in many respects I think that when I was a young Christian this is kind of how it was for me or when I first came to faith in Christ it sort of worked out this way when I first became aware of my need for a relationship with God I went through a time of immaturity in which I became extremely religious and I diligently sought to amend my life and do religious duties in an effort to clean up my life. I remember when I was baptized, I, had, uh, I came to church, and I had been away from the Lord for a while, and I came in, I had really long hair, and so, and I had on a Hawaiian black shirt and yellow linen pants and orange high-stacked shoes. That's what I look like. And my hair was about as long as Shemaine's. And so I start coming to this church, and I could see people kind of, you know, give me the, the look. And it wasn't a look of, hey, come on in, we love you. It was more like, what, what are you doing here? And so I started going to church, and I started going to church, started looking around. Nobody else there looked like me. And I even went to a seminar in this church, which is a very legalistic church, where some guy stood up and said, if a man has long hair, it means he has homosexual tendencies. So I started feeling a little pressure. So I went and got a haircut, and I looked like the guy on the Dutch boy paint can, just chopped off. And I remember I walked into the baptistry to get baptized, and my pastor said in his most ministerial voice, isn't it wonderful? That when Jesus comes into a man's life, he changes him inside and out. And of course, everybody in the congregation, glory, hallelujah, yay. But I was striving hard to get God to like me, to love me. I, know, I knew I was a sinner. Nobody had to convince me of that. And I made tearful surrenders to God at church services. And I gave my life to Jesus, and I asked him into my heart over and over and over. But I resolved to be a very good and very religious person, hoping that that would ultimately procure the favor and blessing of God. And in this stage, I had a lot of emotional ups and downs, like a child, feeling good when I was doing okay with my spiritual commitment, being despondent when I failed to keep my promise to God, a great deal of anxiety, like children, 
I had not yet discovered the depth of the gospel. I was under the supervision of the law. And the purpose of the law is to drive me to Christ. To show me how much I need him. And so the miserable moralist has an insensitivity to the sweetness of God's love. Uh, the uh, miserable moralist is forced to rely on his own righteousness. Because he's aware of the requirements of the law, he knows that he never makes the grade. He never lives up. And his desire to prove love for God, he will be tempted to resent God for being so demanding. When he's overwhelmed and exhausted from these wrestlings of soul, he will give up in apathy and give in to self-indulgence. Let me repeat that, because that is something I see in my own heart. When overwhelmed and exhausted from the wrestlings of the soul, he will give up in apathy, he will quit. It's too hard, it's too difficult, nobody can do it, and I'm tired of playing the game. Or give in to self-indulgence, well, I can't stop sinning, might as well have some fun. And the whole cycle begins over and over again. That's the miserable moralist. The Christian in Romans chapter 7. Why would a perfectly holy God love me? What makes me acceptable to Him? How can I find acceptance with a God who demands perfection which I know I will never be able to produce? He needs to take the words of the hymn to heart. Listen carefully. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone. Gloriously complete. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? The author of this hymn prefaced it with these lines. Since I first discovered Jesus to be the end of law for righteousness to everyone that believes, I have more than once met with a poor sinner seeking peace at the foot of Sinai, that is the law, instead of Calvary. And I have heard him again and again in bitter disappointment and fear and groaning, what must I do? I have said to him, do, do, what can you do? The miserable moralist is also very critical of others, especially those who are enjoying God's blessings, because I know that that person's not as committed as I am. I know that person doesn't work at it as hard as I do. I know that person is not nearly as serious about the things of God as I am. And so the sad moralist is, well, just sad. He's miserable. He knows his sin. But he doesn't see the beauty and glory of the gospel yet. He hasn't seen it. It's not something like lighting a fire in his being. So when the smug moralist, that's the first guy, he needs to grow in his understanding of the depths of God's demand and his utter f failure to fulfill them. And he's the miserable moralist is tempted to spend his days mourning in self-condemnation. Even though each type is a very d different religious orientation, the smug moralist and the miserable moralist might be surprised to learn that they are alike in one significant way. They both have something to learn from the gospel. 
The happy moralist or the smug moralist needs to see the depths of sacrificial suffering that is cavalier self-righteousness caused the lamb. The miserable moralist needs to see the depths of sacrificial suffering that is sober self-righteous sin caused the lamb. Both need to see themselves as sinful and flawed. The smug moralist needs to be humbled by a clear view of his laxity and self-love. And the miserable moralist needs to be humbled by the discovery that even his self-righteousness and self-loathing are symptoms of a heart that's too proud to abandon itself and its reliance upon itself to the grace of Christ. But there's a third way. And the third way is the gospel-centered Christian. And the gospel-centered Christian says this, I have seen the love of God and I am amazed. I'm enthralled. It vitalizes me. It refreshes me. It's life-giving. It raises me up. It causes me to want to be obedient. It causes me to rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to cut to the chase a little bit quickly here because I think this is so important. Paul in his letter to the Galatian church, was, which was in danger of falling into either one of these sins, asked him this question, where is all your joy? Where's your joy? And I'm, I might ask us, you, me, all of us today, where's your joy? Did you have joy this week in Jesus? Are you happy in Jesus? Is the gospel becoming to you something precious, something you treasure? Are you focusing more on you and what you've done or not done? And the only way to change and the only way to be different and the only way to be transformed by the power of the gospel is to see what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 where he said, I've learned more and more to die to myself. And that the love of Christ constrains me, it compels me to no longer live focused upon myself, but to live for others and to live for Jesus. There is a power in the gospel, and I call that power joy. And so the gospel-centered Christian understands that God only saves one way. He saves by grace. And there are Christians who are overly attentive to the law, but they forget that our sanctification is just as much a work of God's free grace as our justification is a declaration of God's act of free grace. For the gospel-centered Christian, the function of the law is to drive us to Christ and to make us continually more and more thankful for his perfect keeping of it in our place. It's to make us more dependent upon his righteousness and not our own. And when we sin, as we do every day, we are to respond to the Lord in the light of our failures in humble contrition. Listen to these three things. We're to confess our sins to God freely, openly, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to strive against them. That's how you deal with your sin and failure. Number two, you are to thank God for your ongoing struggle with sin. Because when rightly viewed, it makes you love and appreciate Jesus more. 
Number three, you strive to put off sin and obey all the moral law in the light of God's ongoing forgiveness, love, and grace. The gospel produces joy. Most Christians do number one and number three. They confess their sins, ask the Holy Spirit to strive against them. They strive to put off their sin and obey the moral law, but they miss point two. Point two is thanking God for the struggle, for the ongoing struggle with sin. Because rightly viewed, it makes us love and appreciate Jesus Christ all the more. They missed the truth that God is sovereign even over our sin. And even though he hates sin, he uses it to bring praise to his son. He uses it for his glory. Now, I'm not saying that our sin pleases God in any way. It doesn't. But God uses it to show us again how much we need Jesus. Perhaps a prayer like this would be appropriate. Father, please forgive my sin and cause me to walk in holiness. Thank you that my sin reminds me how desperately I need the cross, how thankful I am for your grace. Thank you that you love me despite my sin today. And you will use even this for your glory. Lord Jesus, thank you that you bore those sins in your body on the tree. Thank you for your love and grant me grace to obey because of it. You see, what most of us do when we see our sin is we run from Jesus. And what we need to do when we see our sin is run to Jesus. You think he's surprising? Do you think it's a new discovery for him that, you know, I saved this guy, I shed my blood on the cross and he's still sinning? I don't mean to make light of sin at all. I don't. But a Christian begins to understand that the law shows us a reflection of God's character. The true gospel-centered Christian loves God's law, wants to obey every part of it with his whole heart. But he doesn't allow the law's demands to strengthen or diminish his confidence in his justification in any way. And so the Christian is one. If you hear me pause up here, it's because I have 12 sermons. <laughs> and I'm editing as I go. And that's no lie. That's about how many are sitting up here. But what I want to close out on is joy. Because truly seeing the good news as it is good news Truly understanding, there's no way I can lose being united to Jesus Christ. He has done everything necessary to make a sinner like me, or a smug moralist like me, or a miserable moralist. I've been, I've been both of those. I have been, I oscillate like a fan between those. My, my grandmother, when I was a kid, the first oscillating fan, you know, the one that turns, goes around the room like this. My grandmother had no air conditioning. I can remember laying on the floor with a cold washcloth on my head and the oscillating fan and how good it felt when the fan had the instance of being on me. And then it would move away. And so <laughs> my life is like an oscillating fan. Oh, one day, I'm a smug moralist. I'm looking down at everybody feeling good. I'm so much better than you. And the other day, I'm a miserable moralist. Nobody loves me, everybody hates me, guess I'll eat some worms. And then once in a while, the refreshment of the gospel comes. 
But what I want us to see is the refreshment of the gospel is to be normative. And, and the results of truly grasping and understanding the gospel is joy. Where is all our joy? It's lost in our moralism. That's where it is. And we're losing the power of the gospel to transform us. Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength. Why do we have no strength? Because we have no joy. Why do we have no joy? Because we're moralist. We're not living out of the resources of the gospel. Christian joy is a sense of well-being and delight produced by the Holy Spirit as he enables us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the gospel. Let me repeat that. Christian joy is a sense of well-being and delight produced by the Holy Spirit as he enables us to see the beauty and glory of Christ most effectively put before our eyes in the gospel. And that's what motivates us. There's nothing worse than being a Christian trying to serve Jesus if the love of God bores you. I mean, you know, just add on another layer of guilt. But when the gospel enthralls you, and, and that's why Martin Luther said we need to preach it to ourselves every day. We need to beat it inside our heads. Martin Luther said, you know, I wake up every day and I'm still looking for some reason I can find in myself that God would love me. And there aren't any. Why would he ever love us? Because he chose to. Because he chose to set his affection upon us. And out of all people in the world, we should be filled with joy. That's not to say that we don't mourn over and struggle with our sin. And that's not to say that we don't take God's law seriously. We do. But all of those are like, like cul-de-sacs that whip us back around to Jesus. And we find life and fullness in Him. And so... We can lose the gospel, either by being a smug moralist or a miserable one, or we can gospelize ourselves daily by living in the joy that's in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe it help us believe it we are too often running to and fro across this world trying to find hope satisfaction and life and peace in everything but you and we pray that you would wake us up and draw us back to your feet that we may be overwhelmed with your goodness, not ours. That we may be overwhelmed with your suffering, not ours. And we pray that this message would produce fruit that would glorify you. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we take this offering and use it for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.